This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We'll hear argument next in case 19635, Donald Trump versus Cyrus Vance. Historic arguments at the Supreme Court on Tuesday. A pair of constitutional clashes that could insulate presidents from investigations while in office and add an explosive new element to the 2020 election campaign. In the more than three hours of arguments, the justices expressed mixed reactions to President Trump's efforts to stop his banks and accountants from complying with subpoenas from House Democrats and a New York prosecutor. The liberal justices often asked about precedent. Here are Justices Stephen Breyer, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Sonia Sotomayor. And other cases, Watergate particularly, the court gave contested material involving the very workings of the presidential office to the prosecutor. So how do you distinguish, say, white water when President Clinton's personal records were subpoenaed from his accountant or even Hillary Clinton's law firm billing record was subpoenaed? And we're not asking him to produce it, and some of the subpoenas that Congress through history as far back as 1792 have asked for personal papers of the president while being president. While the conservative justices often asked about harassment, here are Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. And we're concerned, as you've recognized, with the potential for harassment. Uh, And how does that play in? I mean, at what point does the number of committees investigating the the president's personal papers become a factor uh, in an analysis of the uh, uh, issue of harassment? You know, at some point, there's a straw that breaks the camel's back. And it seems as though you're saying that we should look at these in isolation as opposed to in the aggregate. Your final answer was courts can take care of that, but that's the issue here, whether something should be done to prevent the use of these subpoenas for the harassment of a president. But the chief, who is likely the pivotal vote in both cases, sent mixed signals. Well, in other words, it's okay for the grand jury to investigate, except it can't use the traditional and most effective device that grand juries have typically used, which is the subpoena. And many of the justices did seem to suggest they favored limits on the power to demand the president's personal information. Here's Justice Breyer. The job of the House and Senate, in part, as the president, is politics. That doesn't bother me. But the Clinton v. Jones information does bother me. And the fact that what I hold today will also apply to a future Senator McCarthy asking a future Franklin Roosevelt or Harry Truman exactly the same questions, that bothers me. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardoza Law School. These were two cases about subpoenas for President Trump's financial records, but different underlying issues. Explain the difference in the issues in the two cases. So the first case that was argued was about the authority of Congress to issue subpoenas for papers that pertain to the president and his corporate entities from third parties who were in possession of those documents. And it was really about the limits of Congress's authority to issue 
that kind of subpoena pursuant to or ancillary to its legislative authority. The second case was about a different entity's authority to issue subpoenas. It was the authority of a Manhattan prosecutor, a state prosecutor, acting on behalf of a grand jury in the state of New York to issue a subpoena again to a third party for records in their possession that pertain to the president. So between the two cases, there was actually considerable overlap between the documents that were being sought. In fact, the substance of the documents being sought in the subpoena issued by the New York grand jury was identical to one of the subpoenas issued by a congressional committee in the first case. Did it seem to you as if the subpoena from the New York prosecutor was a stronger case in many respects and that the justices quibbled less about it than the congressional subpoenas? It did seem like a more streamlined case, the second case. The issues seemed to be simpler. And one important distinction in the second case as well was the willingness of the attorney who was representing the Manhattan District Attorney, Carrie Dunn, to concede limits on the authority of the agency that he was representing with respect to its investigative authority when investigating matters pertaining to a sitting president. And so one of the things that I think frustrated the justices in the first case, which involved Congress, was that the attorney representing the House of Representatives was really reluctant to concede any limiting principle on what it was that Congress had the authority to investigate, including with respect to a president. So the fact that the lawyer in the second case for the Manhattan DA was in a sense more modest about the assertion of authority in some ways allowed the justices to sort of focus in on the narrow issues presented and seeming to be less concerned about setting out uh, limits. At the Supreme Court oral arguments on Tuesday over the New York prosecutor's subpoena for President Trump's financial records, Trump's attorney Jay Sekulow contended that the president has complete immunity from criminal subpoenas while in office, a point that many of the justices, including Justice Elena Kagan, took issue with. We're asking for temporary presidential immunity. So, Mr. Sekulow, you've said that a number of times and made the point, which we have made, that presidents can't be treated just like an ordinary citizen. But it's also true, and indeed a fundamental precept of our constitutional order, that a president isn't above the law. I've been talking to Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardoza Law School. Jessica, Trump's personal attorney was arguing for what he called temporary presidential immunity. Do you think any of the justices bought that really broad argument? I don't know how far the justices will go in issuing their opinion. Um, They may find that it is not necessary to go that far. Certainly, that is a broad and unprecedented legal claim. The notion that a subpoena couldn't be issued to a third party for records that pertain to the president, that that would be covered by this assertion of presidential temporary immunity. I mean, that is such a broad and sweeping claim. It's certainly possible that some of the justices would adopt it, but it seems less likely than that they would find a way to rule on a narrower basis. I thought that the lawyer for the New York District Attorney's Office just did a very good job of explaining what's at stake if the court were to hold for the president on that issue. He explained, you know, not only would the president potentially be immune actually forever because the statute of limitations might run on a crime that had been committed while the president was in office, 
but also other parties who might have been involved in committing crimes, uh, for example, corporate entities or other individuals who committed crimes uh, that would have been revealed by the evidence uh, obtained through the grand jury process, and that those people effectively would have absolute immunity because as to them too, the statute of limitations would run by the time the prosecutors were able to obtain the information. And also, evidence just simply wouldn't be available, even if legally there weren't a bar through the running of the statute of limitations. Um, if the president's right that you can't even issue a grand jury subpoena to get these records while he's in office, then those records might very well disappear. I mean, records, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, don't survive forever. So you have to get them while they're available. Equally importantly, witnesses may leave the jurisdiction, some may pass away, and even those who remain physically available, their memories will fade as to the important events. And so that's why it's so critical that the grand jury be able to conduct its investigation even while the president is in office, even if it's true that the president can't be charged um, and tried while he's in office. The idea of harassment, that this was just to harass the president, came up a lot, especially in the congressional subpoenas. It did. And in effect, the president's lawyers were arguing that the subpoenas were issued on the pretext that Congress was considering legislation and that instead the true motivation was simply to harass and embarrass the president. And the president's lawyers really were inviting the court to look behind the House's asserted purpose, and they did assert legislative purposes, to what the president's lawyers characterized as their true motivation as evidenced by material in the public record, including contemporaneous statements. And if the court follows up on that invitation to explore the true motives of Congress, that too would be quite interesting because the court generally has rejected such invitations. Um, And usually it's the president and his lawyers who are actually arguing to the court that the court should disregard motives and should look at whether there is an articulable purpose for uh, legislation or an executive order, for example, in the context of the travel ban, and not go beyond the stated purpose. So again, that will be an interesting question to see how the court addresses it in the opinions that it issues. Several justices asked why this case was different from U.S. v. Nixon or Jones v. Clinton or Whitewater. Did they get a clear answer to that? Well, I think that some of what the justices were trying to get at was some articulation of the specific burden that these subpoenas were going to impose on the president in exercising his Article II authority. And the justices pointed out, for example, that in Clinton versus Jones, President Clinton was required to sit for a deposition, which in a sense was quite burdensome. But here, the subpoenas, which had been issued to a third party, in a sense, imposed no articulable burden on the president in terms of his time, or at least that's what the justices were suggesting, and they were looking for a response to that from the president's lawyers. And what the president's lawyers and the Department of Justice lawyers said in response was, well, it's more than just a question of how long does it take you to literally comply with the subpoena. Um, You know, that may be, in a sense, instantaneous because everything is electronic. But it's a burden in terms of time of having to sit with your lawyers and talk about whether they're going to resist certain documents being turned over. And it's a distraction from the the president being able to focus on his other presidential duties. And then they went further, the president's lawyers, in arguing that it was essentially going to be undermining his ability to perform 
his presidential functions because it would politically undermine him. That even if it didn't literally take his time, even if he wasn't spending time with his lawyers going over the case, that if documents were released that were embarrassing to him, that that would undermine him politically, and that therefore would be an impairment of the presidency. And that's going to be a really interesting thing to see how the justices address it in their opinion, in terms of thinking about, well, what's the burden imposed on the presidency? Are they going to take into account this sense of sort of political undermining of the president as a cognizable burden that a president could assert in resisting a subpoena? Every lawyer knows that grand jury secrecy is paramount to the system. So what did you make of Justice Alito questioning whether grand jury materials would be leaked to the New York Times? That was an odd moment in the argument. Uh, It uh, it certainly was. Uh, I thought that uh, Carrie Dunn handled it very well, just brought it back uh, to the issues before the court. Um, There had been a question about whether or not a state's grand jury secrecy rules and whether people who had been before the grand jury or prosecutors or members of the grand jury were permitted to speak to the public and the press about what had happened in the grand jury, whether that would impact the analysis at all. And so I I think that uh, Mr. Dunn just tried to fold in that particular question about leaks into that general vein. And what what I thought he said uh, quite well was simply that we, you know, we generally assume that prosecutors act in good faith and follow their duty. And, you know, where there are rules, which is true in most jurisdictions, that they have to preserve grand jury secrecy, one should assume uh, that they will, absent evidence uh, to the contrary. And that provided ample protection uh, to keep the material secret in the ordinary course. So do you have any inkling about how they might rule in the case, in the cases? I think that there, there certainly is the possibility in the first case that they could send it back. This is the congressional subpoena case and say, we're going to articulate a different standard um, than the standard articulated by the Court of Appeals for when Congress can get material pertaining to the president. We don't think it's a limitless authority. We're going to impose some limits and we're going to impose some standards. They could do that, perhaps. Perhaps there's a majority to do that, which would effectively preserve congressional authority to issue subpoenas in some context, but perhaps not in a limitless fashion. If they did that, that would have the effect of sending it back to the lower court, which would then have to decide whether that standard had been met. And that could result, even if it results in a decision um, in favor of the House, the ultimate disclosure of the records might well be beyond the November election. But I really, uh, at this point, can't predict exactly um, how how that decision is going to come out. And similarly, uh, for the second case, Certainly, there seemed to be a, a group of justices who were concerned about harassment um, of this president, but they're also going to be looking for principles that apply more broadly. I mean, I, I was struck actually in the first argument by a line from Justice Breyer who said, you know, I'm thinking about 
this sort of limitless authority that the House is saying it has um, in the hands of a, another future Senator McCarthy wielding against another president, right? So I think they're going to be trying to think about, as they must, as the Supreme Court of the United States, how whatever principles they articulate will apply not only in this case, but in all future cases. We should mention that even if the New York prosecutor gets the tax returns and all the financial records they're looking for, those are going to be secret because of the grand jury secrecy. So the public is most likely not going to see Donald Trump's tax returns before the election. That's a really important point. Regardless of the outcome of these cases, even if the rulings are in favor of the entities seeking the information, um, there is a very, very good chance that that information, even if provided to Congress and to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the the grand jury there, uh, would not wind up in the public domain for a very long time. Thanks, Jessica. That's former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by going to our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. Social distancing slows the spread of coronavirus, so we should all stay home to lower the risk for everyone. More info at coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part. Because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council.